We thank you for joining us for the Penworld Voices Festival of International Literature at the Siegel Center. As New York's first International Writers' Festival, Pen World Voices is an answer to American cultural insularity and an attempt to enrich and sustain the global dialogue. Each spring, the festival brings writers from all over the world to New York City to introduce American audiences to the finest international literature. Thus, this year, we have 170 writers from 51 countries in 82 events all over town. This is one of the 82 events. And now I'm going to hand it over to the moderator. Thank you. Thank you. Um, hello, and welcome to the 2008 Penn World, World Voices Festival. My name is Ben Schrank. Um, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here to this session. Um, our special guests today are, uh, going from left to right, A.M. Holmes, um, P.F. Tomese, uh, Thant Mintyu, and um, Ravi Al Al Alamindin. Yeah, thanks. Um, you'll also notice to my left an empty chair on the stage. This chair represents those artists around the world who have been robbed of their right to freedom of expression who are prevented from practicing their craft openly or without fear of persecution, and who are unable to join us today. It is a reminder that the silencing writers in one country robs the entire world of their voices. This particular chair is dedicated to one of our colleagues currently in prison in China. This year, Penn American Center is conducting an international campaign to win the release of more than three dozen writers and journalists in Chinese prisons before the Olympic Games open in Beijing roughly 100 days from now. At this event, we remember uh, Kong Yo Ping, internet writer and factory worker, arrested December 13, 2003, after posting five articles and seven poems on an overseas website that alleged corruption. Kong was sentenced on September 16, 2004, to 15 years in prison for subverting state power, a sentence that was reduced to 10 years on appeal. He is currently being held at Lingyang City Prison, West Lingyang Province, and is reportedly suffering from high blood pressure and deteriorating eyesight. Please join Penn's efforts to win the release of Kong Yongping and all the writers and journalists currently in prison in China. Sign the petition at the Penn table outside of uh, many festival events and join Penn as, as a member to support, support all of our programs. You can also sign the petition and join Penn online at uh, www.penn.org. Um, before I introduce each of our guests, I need to make a few short housekeeping announcements. <clears throat> Please turn off all things in your possession, which beep, ring, buzz, play musical tones, or squeal. Um, even if you think you've turned them off, um, and I'll, I'll do this alongside you, there's uh, always one, so go on, take a moment, check again. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and even if, uh, this is, I think, an emphasis, even if you're seated a long way away from us down here in the front, believe me, we can hear you talk. So please be mindful of our speakers today. And if you know that you have to leave the session before its conclusion, please position yourself close to the door now rather than later when it will disrupt our speakers and your fellow audience members. After the session, the writers will be available to you to have their books signed at the book signing table outside in the, in the lobby. Um, and on that note, uh, I'd also like to take a moment to thank all of our Penn volunteers. And now back to our session. Um, I'll just begin by uh, introducing, again, I think from left to right, our, our panelists. A.M. Um, Holmes is the author of, of the novels This Book Will Save Your Life, Music for Torching, The End of Alice, In a Country of Mothers, and Jack, as well as the short story collections Things You Should Know and The Safety of Objects. She's also written the travel memoir Los Angeles, People, Places, and The Castle on the Hill, 
her most recent book, The Memoir of the Mistress's Daughter, was published in 2007. Holmes's work has been translated into 20 languages and appears frequently in art form, Harper's, Granta, McSweeney's, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Zoetrope. She's a contributing editor to Vanity Fair, Bomb, and Blind Spot. Among her many awards are fellowships from the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, New York Foundation of the Arts, and the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library, along with the Benjamin Franklin Award and the Deutscher uh, Deutscher Price. She's been active on the board of directors at Yada, the President's Council for Poets and Writers, the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown in the Writers' Room. She's the treasurer of Penn American Center, where she's chaired both the membership committee and the Writers' Fund. Um, Holmes was a writer and producer of the hit television show, The L Word, and is currently developing an original series for HBO. Um, P.F. Tomese uh, was born in the Netherlands in 1958. He won the AKO Literature Prize with his first book, the short story collection Southland, in 1991. He went on to publish two novels, Heroic Years and The Sixth Act, and another collection of short stories, Love in the Hog and The Dirty Angel. Tomese made his international breakthrough with the memoir Shadow Child, which has been published in more than 15 countries. In 2007, he published Vladowski, a political satire about power shifting in the media. <clears throat> Thant Min Yu uh, was educated at Harvard and Trinity College, Cambridge. He completed his PhD in modern history at Cambridge and is a former fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. He's also served on three United Nations peacekeeping operations in Cambodia and in the former Yugoslavia, as well as for six years with the UN in New York. He's the author of three books, including The Making of Modern Burma and The River of Lost Footsteps. Um, and finally, far to my right, Rabe Alamedin was born in Amman, Jordan, to Lebanese parents and grew up in Kuwait and Lebanon. He has an engineering degree from UCLA and an MBA from the University of San Francisco. He's the author of the novel Kool-Aids, or The Art of War, the story collection The Perv, and most recently, I the Divine, a novel in first chapters. His pieces have appeared in Zoetrope, The Evening Standard, and Al Hayat, among others. Um, and the way we're gonna do the panel today is we're gonna begin uh, with, with Robbie, who's going to speak uh, for 10 or 12 or so minutes, um, and then we're going to jump to um, A.M. Holmes to my left, and then um, to P.F. Franz, and then finally um, Thonman Yu, um, and then we'll take questions from the audience. Okay. <coughs> uh, I'll start with the reason I'm going first is because we met outside in, in in the room and I started talking and I talked so much that they thought I should go first. <laughs> um, so uh, what I'd like to talk about is, uh, I, I wrote an essay recently, so it's been on my, in my mind quite a bit. Uh, and it's not just about the difference between, say, memoir and fiction, but uh, as to is, is there really a difference between them and where do we draw the line? Um, I say that I never, I could never write a memoir because I know I would lie. Uh, it's, it's just my nature. Um, and I could go back to my childhood or, you know, whatever. It, it, uh, the idea of telling the truth as it actually happened uh, for me becomes dull. I just make up, you know, even if it's a little thing, a little twist. Uh, I usually, when I first came here, my friends had a nickname for me. It was uh, Hyperbolea. Because I could take a little, like, kernel of a story and turn it into a big tale. Uh, I've been known to, once I tell a story, 
uh, by the, it's like even if story that I was briefly involved in, by the second telling, I become more important in that story. <laughs> by the third telling, it happened to me. Uh, because the whole idea is, uh, it might not be like this in this culture, although I do think it is. Uh, where I come from in Lebanon, this is called to salt and pepper a story. Uh, and if you don't salt and pepper a story, what you have is craft singles. Uh, so it's an embellishment. Now, what is, it, what is the difference between, you know, slight embellishment and a fake memoir? Uh, there, there is a line, I can tell you that. I just don't know where to draw it. So that's why I don't think I can write a memoir. The, the subject that I would like to talk about is whether, you know, and sort of ask the audience at some point is, what, why, is this, why is there such an infatuation with telling the truth? Why are liars so underappreciated? Uh, in my, uh, I actually have a novel out now, and it's called The Hakawati, which in uh, Lebanese means the storyteller. And it uh, is basically about storytelling and embellishment. Um, and everybody in the story basically makes up stories. And what I'm fascinated by is if everybody keeps asking, you know, is this autobiographical? I don't know. I mean, I can never, even if I sat down to write an autobiography, it will not be true. So how can it be that when I sit to write a memoir, uh, or when I sit to write a novel or fiction, that people will think uh, this is true? Then that's basically what I'm interested in talking about. <laughs> Over to you, I have, I have you down for so many more minutes than that. Huh? Oh, I could talk. If you want me, I could go on and on and on. I'm curious about whether or not when, when people write fiction or nonfiction, if you're writing fiction, do you, do you yourself know the difference between the pieces that come from reality or known experience versus the pieces that you make up? If, you, if you're asking me, yes, yeah. I know. But the trouble is that even the pieces that come from reality, by the time they're on the page, are so different uh, that they become fictionalized. Now, you know, in my essays, when I try to write nonfiction, of course, I mean, I'm exaggerating as usual. I'm embellishing. I don't always lie, but I do lie. You know, so you tell a story that's sort of slightly true, but it makes it better if it was told from this angle or that angle. Um, so yes, and then at some point, I think we forget. I mean, I know that, you know, it's like when I look at things that happened in my childhood and I tell, say, my sister who was right there, and she will say this did not happen. And it's, it, it's, it's actually quite common. Do, 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 you, do you presume embellishment when you're reading memoir? I do. I actually, also, I, I read memoirs as fiction. It's just, I read everything as fiction, because that's what I enjoy. I mean, even histories, I read them as, as, as fiction. It's, and this is, again, I'm not, this is not a suggestion for you. This is what I do, because uh, I'm infatuated with, with fiction. Mm -hmm. I just have another question. Don't uh, go was, ahead. Was, was, was that an, uh, a tendency that you learned over time, or has, have you always felt that way? Uh, always. I mean, I've, uh, I don't have many friends. I'm a recluse. 
and I make up okay. friends. I've made up stories ever since I was like five years old. I had these imaginary friends that came from Europe to visit me, and you know. Uh, so even even if I wrote a memoir, it would be a fictional memoir. It would be about things that never happened in my head. I mean, the things that happen in my head are a lot more real than than reality. It's just the way I am. But it could possibly be the true story of what happened in your head. I I never said I didn't say I don't tell the truth. I said I lie. Right. <laughs> I lie, but what I say is true. I'm just always so interested lately in the in the idea that that so much fiction people write from their lives and that so often it seems as though we've forgotten the role of the imagination and that there really is such a thing as a made-up story and that all, you know, all fiction doesn't come in fact from personal experience or childhood experience and that you know, I think that, that a lot of times a writer who's honest in some way can tell, the diff can tell you the difference. I mean they know this is where this came from and this is where that came from and this is how I made the story. Um, but I think there's always an assumption among readers, interestingly, that it's not fiction, that in fact all of it happened. Yeah. And, and that's where uh, specifically I get in trouble, right. is, is, is that everybody assumes. There was a, an article that basically took something I said in, in the latest book and said, the man, Ahmed al-Saydawi, told the story for 372 days, which I made up. You know, I made up the name and you know, I just called the great Hakawati, you know, told this story for, th and it was taken as if, even though it was in the book as fiction, it was taken as if, it, you know, that was the writer speaking directly to the reader. I mean, it's partly also flattering. I mean, I'm always flattered when somebody believes what I say. Uh, so, and especially if you're, you know, writing and they read the book and they actually think it's true, part of me thinks, well, they were taken, you know, they were taken with the book, they were taken with the writing. But at the same time, I think we've forgotten that it's actually fiction. Is that, did I do my time? Yes, <laughs> well, you. Yeah. Um, well, we'll come back to you. Oh, question. thank you. <laughs> do you want to? Sure, I mean, I, I thought what I would do, I, I feel like I'm, <laughs> they assured me it was fine no matter where it was, but it feels like it's sinking. Anyway, um, I am somebody who has written a lot of fiction that really comes from the imagination. I write, not from my own experience. You know, I've written things about like a, cha a jailed pedophile murderer, not someone I ever met, thank God. Uh, and then I get letters saying, I think we have something in common. Um, <laughs> we really don't. Um, <laughs> but having now written this memoir, I'm all the more aware of the differences between the two. And I would say for me, the memoir took 10 years and it was excruciating. It was like, I don't know, like sort of doing surgery on yourself. Um, what I thought I was going to do today was actually read one of the things I've been doing is I've been doing a lot of work collaborating with writers and artists on other projects. So I've been doing things with um, a lot of photographers and trying to write pieces of fiction that in essence give voice to their work. So I did a piece with um, a British artist named Sarah Jones who uh, I met at the artist colony Yaddo. And if you Google Sarah Jones plus photographer plus UK, because there's a lot of people apparently named Sarah Jones in the world, You'll see. And she's been doing a series of images, actually, of analyst couches, and analyst couches in New York and around the world. Um, and the piece I wrote for her is a lot about memory, and, and I think it's interesting because without saying it, it also addresses the differences between fact and fiction and memory and, and the imagination. It's called Whose Story Is It and Why Is It Always on Her Mind? She is seeing the doctor now. It was a condition of her release. The thorns, the doctor asks. Yes, she says, 
plucked from rose stems, she drove the thorns deep into her skin, pressing them like shark's teeth in a line up and down her arms. She pressed the thorns into her skin until the skin gave way and buried the thorn. And then she took off her shoes and pushed the thorns into her feet and walked from park to park, carefully collecting more thorns. Specimens, she called them. Her wounds became infected. The infection spread into her blood. We almost lost you, her mother said. I was right here the whole time, hiding in plain sight. I see you are walking with a limp, the doctor says. I'm treading lightly. Why thorns? It runs in the family. She glances over her shoulder to see if the doctor is listening and catches him off guard. Their eyes meet. She looks away. Continue, the doctor says. She lies back. Her fingers stroke the deep blue fabric on the doctor's couch. My mother rearranges the furniture constantly, she says. She's trying to make something that she remembers. I'm not sure it ever really happened. She says she is getting closer. She is no longer young, but she gathers the energy to push the sofa around the room. And when she's done, she cries. It will never be the same again. It is always almost there, but not quite. She can't put her finger on it. The light, the silence. Every day she tries a new combination, hoping the pieces will fall into place like the pin tumblers of a lock, hoping there will be an opening and something will be revealed or recovered. Where are you going with that? I ask as she moves the lamp from this table to that. I am going back to where I came from, she says. But it does not exist, I say. She makes still lives, tableau of how she wishes it were. Is it the same sofa, the one from before, she asks me, now confused. That's what you've always told me. I don't know anymore, she says. Maybe it came after the fact. She calls the war the fact. My mother's sofa is also blue. Finished for today, she gets up carefully. The next time she visits the doctor, she notices a hair. She sees it as she's approaching the doctor's couch, a blonde hair like a golden thread glinting in the light. She doesn't know what to do, pick it up, stretch it between her fingers, and pluck it like a harp string. She imagines winding it around and around her finger until the finger turns blue, pressing it against her neck like a fine gold wire what to do. She pretends not to see it. She lies down on it, the blonde hair beneath her own brown hair, the blonde hair becoming for the time part of her, but she can't bear it. Whose hair is it? Does the doctor have sex on this sofa? My mother was born the day before the war ended. She was a girl without a father, a miracle. For a long time she believed that. We all did. The fact is, during the war, my grandmother was left at a Catholic boarding school. Her parents brought her there in the middle of the night, turned their backs, and left. As she screamed for them, the nuns held their hands over her mouth. The way the story goes, he appeared in the garden behind the school. She pretended not to know what happened, but it's possible she didn't know. It was a war. She was terrified they would die. The only thing that kept her sane was that the roses kept blooming. That's where they found her, entangled in the rose bushes by the spindly arms of the prickly vines. He came into the garden, bent to smell the roses, and saw her. He pushed her into the roses. When he was gone, she remained trapped. She lay in the garden all night. She watched the sky go dark, the stars come out. She looked up into the blue, the internal, the unending, the unnameable. She was asleep when they found her. Grandmother woke up, but only partially. 
It was as if she was under a spell. Sometimes she would come out from under, but mostly she seemed baffled, like it all just didn't make sense. As a child, my mother knew that my grandmother hated her, but she didn't know why or what she'd done wrong. My mother kept herself hiding in boxes or under the table inside closets. She would pretend she was invisible. Later, she would hide in the woods behind the trees or in a pile of leaves. She would play chameleon and practice shifting in her skin to match the environment. When the other children came to play, my mother would hide, and only after they left would she rush to the window, press her face to the glass, and look at them leaving. My mother found out when she was about 13. She doesn't remember how, but she said it explained a lot. When she found out, she went on a nighttime rampage through the parks of London and cut all the roses. She brought back hundreds of roses, filling my grandmother's house with roses from bud to bloom to past their prime. Cabbage rose, common rose, tea rose, each with delicate petals like human flesh, each with a perfume, a beautiful scent turned putrid. The theft of the roses was a crime. The roses belonged to the city, to the people. The story of the theft made all the papers, and her mother was horrified and threatened to turn her over to the authorities. I can't have this, she said. It's too much. You're doing it to me again. You're just like your father. You are the proof that you can't escape your history. And together they cut the roses and the long thorny stems into little tiny pieces and boiled them down. She pauses. Does anyone have a life of their own? She asks the doctor. He doesn't answer. Her third visit is different. There's something on the sofa, like a doily or a napkin covering the little pillow. Is the hair still beneath it? Is it being hidden, kept safe? She lies back and says nothing. She looks at the room, at the light through the windows, at a lamp, part of a painting, an extra chair, a table with a plant. She's thinking of her mother moving furniture, of her grandmother trapped in the roses. She stares at the plant, a beautiful white and purple orchid, and wonders, did the doctor buy it or receive it as a gift? Is it real, she asks. Does it look real, the doctor answers. When the session is over, she sits up, the room spins, a kaleidoscope blurring. She falls back onto the sofa. Your time is up for today, the doctor says, but she cannot get up. The doctor seems flummoxed. This has not happened before. He goes to his desk, rummages through a drawer, and finds a tin of hard candy. He offers her one. It is red and in the shape of a rose. She sucks the sugar. The sucre works wonderful. In her dreams, she is walking on water, and it is raining rose petals. Um, what the heck was I that? I don't know if you can follow yours. <laughs> what? I, I, I was, well, it's a question for all of you, but I'm just a transition <laughs> between you. I, I, was, I was just wondering, did you feel uh, a different obligation uh, to the reader there as a fiction writer than as a memoir writer? With this? The interesting thing with this is it falls in like some netherland that's never been described, which is I felt an obligation to the photographer's images, which often deal with memory. And so I felt an obligation to like a sort of a perceived experience of someone else's experience. Yeah. So, but, <laughs> and but I think, you know, when writing, when I, when I think about writing the difference between fiction and nonfiction, I am, by nature, I think, the difficulty of writing really memoir is the, the desire to get it right, and not just to get it right from my point of view, but to try to really 
as best as one can sort of manage it so that you are being as accurate as you can, knowing full well that there is no such thing as real accuracy, um, and that, that even in the craft of trying to write something well, the story shifts and it changes, and trying constantly to bring it back to you know, the closest version of the truth you can tell. Um, I'm very aware of that even when writing journalism too, that you know, as soon as you begin to write a line describing something, you're changing the story in some way. So, so as a memoirist, is it, is it about an, an emotional writer truth or a factual writer truth? Well, hopefully both. I mean, and I think it, uh, not only both, but acknowledging the differences between the two. So when writing something that you, for lack of a word, know to be a, uh, a fact fact as opposed to a psychological fact, writing it as fact, and when you know something else that may or may not be, it's sort of talking about it as a belief or an imagining or an experience or, or as memory, kind of beginning to find labels for things that, that help shape them in, re in, in relationship to each other. Because I think so much of what we read that's written as memoir is, you know, and this is a whole sidebar in a funny way, but a lot of American memoirs are written kind of as like confessions, like I ran over the dog, I was drinking too much beer, I want to tell you about it because now I'll feel better. And they're not about writing at all, and I think that's a, a huge other piece of it for me, is that for me, I am a writer, so I'm very aware of language and the way words work, you know, with each other, and I think that that is something that in, in contemporary American memoirs is often lost, and I think in European memoir it is very much still a part of that, that books are written, they're not just confessed. So, Robbie, so you're reading for writing and story rather than the truth. Um, I'm not disagreeing in some ways, but the, I, I start by telling a story, how the story fits, and whether the story remains in the book or not uh, depends on sort of how true it feels to me. But again, I've never, I haven't done nonfiction because I, I'm terrified of actually somebody coming in and telling me. It's, it's, it's just not there. Were you, were you terrified when you wrote? Uh, I, I, I wrote a book on, on the death of my child, but I was not terrified because of the child because she was dead and she couldn't read any anyway. So, but uh, I was terrified to be, not, not to be honest, and I think. Uh, I, I tried to write something that was uh, true, and, and, and when you write a novel, you, you, you're trying to write something that works. You are <coughs> organizing material, information, facts, words, and you try to make a, a story that works. But when you're writing about the loss of someone, you, you try to find words for something uh, which there are no proper words, so it, it's, it's kind of useless to do it, and, and on the other hand, I had to do it because I, I lost her, and the, I had only words, so I tried to make a word to keep her, uh, to make her real for myself, and... Uh, and so, so was the determination for you to be true to your memory? No, it was not so much memory. True to my feelings, I guess. True to my experience, and 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 and, and there's another thing. I, I I think we all are writers, and we try to write because we don't uh, understand reality when we live it, and we try to understand it when we are quiet at home at our table, and find words for it. So reality is something you invent at home, and 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 this reality of of of, of someone being dead dead is 
I think that is one of the most important things in literature, I guess. It's about dead people. I think people started writing about a reality that was gone, and also in the sense of being dead. And so I, I, I experienced when writing this book for the first time, I had to write. Mostly it is a kind of choice. I have a wonderful idea, and I'm very proud of it, and I'm curious about how it will work. But in this case, it was uh, an existen existential thing. I, I had to write about it, and I wrote about it immediately. And everybody said, this is a very bad idea. You have to take your time and wait for years and years, and then you become uh, kind of, um, uh, how do you call it, uh, accustomed to the, to the fact, and you can uh, uh, find the proper words. But I, uh, I wanted to write it right away in the, in the, in the heat of the moment. So it has become a book that uh, that didn't exist before, I guess. And uh, I won't, I couldn't write it now. At, I had to write it then. Uh, now it's, it's five years ago, and I, I wouldn't wouldn't write about her anymore, I guess. Uh, shall I read also? Uh, yes, uh, sure. Yeah, I I, I had uh, this is a piece I wrote for the New York Times when the. Translation was launched uh, launched in uh, 1905, and it's called A Late Father. How was I to know what fatherly love was? I, always, I almost never became a father myself. I only did it for her, for Makira, that's my wife. Uh, the books I read, the poems, the songs, the movies, they all advised me likewise. Stay who you are. Stay a son. Go west, young man. Never settle down. Becoming a father was the most gripping experience of my life, and not only because I had to see my daughter die. It was her birth that stunned me most. A little animal fighting its way out. I've always liked animals more than people. And this was so overwhelming. We became animals, the three of us. We roared like beasts. At least the two of you did. I felt a strange kind of sorrow because I had suddenly found out what I'd been missing all my life. A little little creature like that trembling in the palm of your hand, her little eyes blinking at the light, so alive, so unbelievably alive, like nothing had ever been before. For a long time I had regarded the family as a prison in which people were condemned to each other, brooding upon upon murder and mayhem and dreaming of freedom. Freedom like a distance into which one could vanish. I'm the only son of a family of complainers and deserters. My father shouted, my mother wept. I climbed the highest trees I could find. I hid in their crowns. Literature, <coughs> the dominion of sons, was where I had it. I withdrew into the wilderness of language where I taught myself to make fire, to find my way in surroundings that consisted of leaves, leaves and more leaves, and to be at home there. I firmly believed that somewhere out there, in the world of the living, someone was missing me. There, outside the wilderness, I as assumed, there had to be someone who thought about me all the time. Someone who thinks about you all the time, precisely the kind of wishful thinking that marks the child. It was liberating, I must say, to suddenly be allowed to cast off the royal robe of self-importance. Isa, 
That's the name of my uh, baby daughter. Isa, dearest, you swam like a little fish in your mother's inner sea. You sprawled on your changing mat like the emperor of China. You demoted your parents to servants in a life over which they had formerly ruled. Just look at your big father making a fool of himself. Good thing no one can see him trying to close the snaps on your rompers with his fumbling, with, with his fumbling fingers while you, discerning as you are, scream at the top of your lungs because for you the whole situation has become simply too-too. If my little girl had not died, I would probably never have written about her, about the snaps on her rompers. Now I had to. There was nothing else I could do. You come home from the hospital and the cradle is still standing there as though nothing has happened. The things have no idea. Th they lie innocently in wait. I started writing. There was nothing else to do to it. I scrawled out a map for a memory that had lost its way. The landscape as illegible map. Just when you think you finally deciphered it, what it tells you is that you, you are lost. Because one thing writing is not finding solutions. It's writing a letter without having the address. The poem is always on its way, says Paul Celan. It's a German uh, poet. It's a scout who never arrives. A book lives longer than a girl, Nabokov says in his lectures on literature. My little girl lived for 47 days. S Shadow Child, my book about her, has existed for uh, almost four years and has been translated into more than a dozen languages. It should be 15 languages. And even so, Nabokov is a dirty liar. The book lives thanks to the girl. Take away her breath and the book dies as well. It's her life that makes the book alive. It's her absence in which the words seek their way. Meanwhile, someone else is lying in her crib, her playpen, her bed. Someone else wears her, her clothes, poops in her rompers, gums at her teddy bear, flips through her picture books. His name is Frederick, and he is someone else. He is so different, so new to us, every day we can hardly believe he really exists. We are so happy with him, and that too we can hardly believe. Because happiness reminds us so much of her, that's why you miss it most, precisely when it's around. That's, uh, Thanks. Difficult transition, but <laughs> but I'll give it to you. Do you want to? But, but maybe I'm made all up. So yes. Uh, maybe. You, uh, my rhetoric must be convincing, but you are not sure <laughs> if I made it all up. You you assume that uh, all the, that is written down is true. Well, I think that's. But I, I think that's the question that arises for me. And again, it, it came up for us earlier as a group: is whether uh, it it it. it whether the truth of it is what we're listening, f whether there's an emotional or factual truth that we're listening for, or are we listening, as you said, for, for prose, for sentences? 
and, and what moves us in the tension between those different things. Is, but is there a... Uh, You're always moved, moved by your own feelings, not by mine. I was more moved by yours than mine. Yeah, but you don't know me and you don't know my... Well, I was but the, but there's, there's, there's an immediacy to the story and there, there is, you know, the, the feelings of grief and the power of it is, is so incredibly compelling that on the one hand, it would, I would say, there's no way any of us could doubt any of it because, I mean, you know, it, it is, you know, it, it literally grabs you and takes the air out of your lungs. Um, and I think on the one hand, you could say, that's brilliant writing, but it also clearly speaks to an experience that is so profound. I mean, you know, there's, for lack of a better word, it's an interesting question. How do you doubt a story like that? Well, the, the, the thing that's also important is, did the story itself, would it be any less moving if, if you didn't know if the person right there wasn't, didn't experience that? If you read that piece, I suggest that the piece is moving irrespective of what happened to the writer. Exactly. I think that that's true because I think whether it's fiction or non-fiction, the fact is you're talking about a profound human experience um, that, yeah, I mean... But, but you can write bad books about uh, that. Obviously, film. you're a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> but you could write bad nonfiction or bad. Yeah. You can write, yeah, you can write bad fiction or nonfiction. Bad. I mean, I think, I think what in, in that way you're really getting it. I mean, it is, it is the coalescence of, you know, wonderful writing and, and an incredibly powerful story. Yeah, but um, for, for me, for instance, I, I, I quoted uh, Paul Celan. He's, he's the poet of, on the ho Holocaust, you can mm -hmm. say. But it's very uncertain what happened to him. Uh, his, his mother died in, 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 in a camp, in a death, death uh, camp. But he himself made up a story. He was in a, in a, in a labor camp or sort, of, sort of thing. Right. But it's, it's never cleared up. It's never really true or not true. You, you never know. Right. And, and he also lost, lost a child, and he wrote about this child. It was called, was called Francois. But yeah, it, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I, I so it doesn't yeah. detract from your experience? No, but it, it, it would be different when he would lead a happy life on a ranch somewhere and right. with, with uh, animals, but when it would be untrue. But when you are uncertain about the truth, it's interesting. I, I think when somebody is a liar, it becomes his books become a lie, I guess, but... More interesting? Okay, it can be, but when the li lie is part of the the, the, the whole invention. It be, but there was, there was a, in, 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 a, in, a, in a camp history, there was a, a, a Swiss uh, a writer, a man who invented his past in, in Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. and he, he yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. sure. And it was a very moving... Uh, but see, that's like, we had this recently in this country, too. There was a woman in Oregon who wrote about her life as an L.A. gang member um, and published it as a memoir. And then the book was actually taken off the shelves after it turned out not to be true. And I kept thinking about, well, why wasn't it good enough that it would just be a novel? Like, why did she have to claim it as personal experience for it to somehow have a kind of validity that a novel no longer has, when traditionally a novel was a very much a truth-telling and a very valid way that we looked at our lives and we sort of reviewed who we were and who we were, you know, both hoping to be and who we had been. So it's a, it's a very interesting question. I, I think that's right. And I think one thing that we were playing with as a group was why 
exactly that why the why it would not be uh, why it becomes more elevated for this for this right. for this young woman uh, to have had an experience and written a memoir about it why is that more elevated or celebrated than if she had written a novel sort of period that it, it's easier for the media I guess uh, but, right. but, but my book was but I also think it's interesting because I think about your book and, and I, I, now I'm like I literally while you were reading I wanted to go up and just like go get it outside I was like <laughs> Um, I have to read it immediately. But I kept thinking, if you read a novel or you read something that was made up, that you knew was made up about somebody who had lost a child, would you feel in any way cheated? Would you feel that this hadn't really happened to this person? I think there's a, you know, people, you know, there's absolutely a credibility to experience that we know happened to somebody. And I think that's one of the things when people you know, have sort of, especially I keep talking about in this country, but there really was like a memoir craze in this country, and people really bought into that sense of somebody having not just been witness to something, but, but you know, being able to sort of, as they would say, own their experience in it, as opposed to somebody, you know, making it up. Yeah, I, I think you, you always write about experiences, but they can be from, of a different type, but uh, you use meta metaphors. I think my, my book is a metaphor too. You, uh, I, uh, maybe you didn't have a child at all or hate children, but then you can uh, invent someone who, who, who you miss, uh, a lover who has gone, or uh, so literature is always a metaphor for, for other feelings. When I read a r novel on Russia, I, I've never been in Russia, but I love uh, to read Russian novels. Mm -hmm. and, and I bought also, it, it, in some ways, m if you ask me the question, the difference between uh, the validity that we give to uh, somebody being a witness, to me the difference is also between a good novel and a bad novel, between a good memoir and a bad memoir. I still suggest that a great novel can take you places you've never dreamed, you know, uh, and, you know, a bad memoir is, I don't care what happened to them. <laughs> I don't. You know, so it, it's not... See? <laughs> Every time I speak, I have this effect on electronic equipment. Um, uh, so it's, it, to me, it becomes about uh, the quality of work, mm -hmm. the, the, whether, whether it's true or not. Again, maybe I'm a different kind of reader, I don't know. becomes irrelevant. If something is moving, it is moving because of what it is. Part of the trouble I think we have is that we get to know the writers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that I think if you never have any idea who wrote this book, is it still as moving as when you know about the person? So what do you think, then? Nice, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, in a way, my starting point is, it was very, very different because I had set out, uh, I was trained as, a, as an historian, and I set out to write, in the beginning, a very straightforward history of my country, Burma, uh, many years ago. And as I got more into it, into the writing and into the research, I felt, and, and because there was, there was a sort of, I felt there was a growing interest in, not just in, 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 in Burma and the contemporary situation, the human rights problems and everything else, I wanted to give people a more general sort of sense of, of what the country was. And, and so it moved me from, from writing a, a straightforward history to also saying something about, or trying to say something about the way in which I thought people in Burma remembered their past. And that meant trying to incorporate a lot of stories that people tell in Burma um, about the past, the way they remember different events in history. And from that, then I sort of started to move as the, as the, as the book sort of evolved in a way 
towards including a lot of stories from my own family and my own family's history over the last 200 years in, in Burma. And then it was only towards the very end of, 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 of working on it uh, that I also started to incorporate a lot of memoir, a lot of autobiographical um, stories as well. And, and so in the end, the book became a very mixed thing. And I'm not, I had no model in mind, and I, I've never actually read as a historian a book that mixes sort of national history, um, sort of people's vision of, of their country's past and family history and, and autobiography. And I hadn't set out to write this new sort of very mixed um, type of book, but that's what it, what it became. I, when I was trying to, the, the reason I incorporated a lot of um, stories or autobiographical details um, was because I felt very strongly at a certain point that it was important actually for the reader to know um, where I was coming from. Because I think when people read history or read something about a place that they know nothing about, I think they would want to know, or at least many people would want to know, is this a person of that country? Uh, or is this an American or British writer writing about that country? And I was born here in, in, in New York and grew up here in the UK, uh, in Thailand, as well as in Burma. And I was someone who had been very politically active in Burma right after university and had been part of the, um, had joined with an insurgency, uh, an armed insurgency on the, on the Thai-Burmese border 20 years ago, uh, was in exile, uh, then talked my way back into the country. Um, and I felt people had to know something about that if they were going to have a sense of, of why I was writing some of the things I was. And I think if, you, if you're anyone who knows anything about Burmese history, and I kind of assume that very few people did, except the Burmese people who might have been reading the book, uh, you would see that it is in the end a very, like I think all histories in the end, a very selective history. There are things I included, there are things I didn't include, there are things I emphasized. Uh, I always tried to be accurate uh, and tried to, I, I didn't make up, as far as I can tell, any, anything about the actual history of the country. But it was very clear to me that I was being very selective in trying to come up with a narrative of the country's past that sort of merged uh, the way in which people think about the past today and things that actually happened in the past. Um, and I tried to draw, not draw a line, but I tried to, to, to mix these things in, in, in a way that I felt was was compelling and also would sort of illuminate a little bit where we are today in Burma, which is, which is in, in many ways a very tragic um, situation. But for me to, to include uh, memoir and, 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 and family history was both a way of trying to give people what I felt was uh, the sense that they would want of, of, of who the writer was that was coming up with um, this version of, 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 of Burma or this sort of telling of, of what the country was all about. Um, but I think in some ways uh, I also did it because it was my way of sort of um, framing some of the issues of sort of getting into certain aspects of the country that I couldn't have from telling a straightforward uh, telling of, of history. Um, that by talking about my own personal experiences and anecdotes uh, in politics or outside of politics, things that happened in my family um, while I was alive or, or, or before I was born, I felt it was, it was a way of getting into certain topics that I couldn't have if I was telling it in the third person um, from um, sort of looking at the country from above in a way. But I think that's very different from, from some of the things that we've been talking about because it's, really, it's not really about blurring the line between fact and fiction, but between uh, a certain type of, of, of non-fiction and memoir. 
um, I consciously ever made anything up in in telling the story of my own life or or the history, but it was very clear to me all along that again it was a, it was a very selective approach. I mean, there are many things that I I put in there. There are many things that I left out, um, and it was all working towards a certain um, a certain very mixed picture that I wanted to to give people as an introduction to to Burma. I, I just have to um, would it. It, just in regards to your last point, would it have? Uh, so you weren't conflicted as 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 you as you sort of weave together the pieces of material. Um, would it have mattered to? You, would would you have? If there was some, there was no conflict about the possibility of having to make something up to. to well, the thing is, when you're writing the thing, if you're writing the history of a of a country <clears throat> over you know a two thousand year history of the country, I mean most of it is on the twentieth century, but it covers you know a couple of thousand years. There's so much stuff out there. Um, that you don't really need to embellish to. I mean, you can always pick and choose so many different stories from different, <coughs> different tellings of different episodes in the past. Uh, and if you go, you know, even if on something fairly recent, the last 20, 30 years, or World War II in Burma, there's so many different uh, interpretations of things that have happened that um, it's, it's really more a, a process of selection than needing to really make up something from, from scratch, if you see what I mean. Um, there was never a point in which I felt this story isn't good enough, and so I'm going to add this part to it. Um, it was really about choosing from a huge amount of raw material that was out there, um, from my own research, and also from, and and also because I included so much that wasn't pure history, but was also people's remembering of the past. Uh, that that also gave an extra dimension in terms of being able to. And I would say, you know, the Burmese people remember the British takeover of Mandalay in 1885 in this way. Um, and or some Burmese, Burmese tradition will tell you that um, this is the way these Burmese kings um, fought this war against Siam. You know, so there was a lot of room in which I could, I could work. Um, Did you feel the same way about your family history and your, and your own history? Yeah, with the family history, it was, it was a little bit easier because, not easier, but it was a slightly different because these were stories that had been told uh, by, to some extent by my parents and my, my grandparents to me over a long time. And so I think by and large it was, it was a, a fairly straightforward sort of my attempt to sort of put these stories on paper for, for the first time. Um, again, there was some selectivity. I mean, I had to sort of merge it with the, the broader kind of history that I was, I was trying to tell. But I was always, I mean, again, I, you know, my background is as, as a historian and trained as a historian. I was never trying to, to, or at least I was always trying to be accurate in, in, in telling these stories as, as best I knew them. So, so selection in that case, different than embellishment. Was there any embellishment? Well, um, there wasn't any conscious embellishment, but you know, as you, as you write it, you know, you, you know if, if I'm describing my, my grandfather was the, was the UN uh, Secretary General in the 1960s, but he grew up in a little town, uh, which I had been to. I visited for the first time just four or five years ago, and I met with these old men. One was 102 years old, who had known him in the 1920s and 30s. And, and so when I talk about his early life in this little town in Burma in the 1920s and 30s, um, you know, there is, a, there, is a, there is a blurry area there, not in terms of things that actually happened, but in terms of describing uh, life in that town, and I can imagine, you know, having seen that town more recently, um, and not having seen that town in the 1920s. I mean, there is a sort of gray space in terms of what what are you describing in terms of of, of what was there then, and, and and what you remember from your own experience in some way.
but no, I wasn't, I wasn't consciously trying to make things up. Were either of you consciously trying to make things up in your memoirs, ever? I mean, in the, in the actual memoir, right? <clears throat> in my book, I, I made some things up here yeah, because um, you have to deal with um, expectations of readers. When, when for instance, it's, it's, it's had to, uh, I had to watch out to not to be too uh, personal because, um, uh, for instance, on, on the death of my uh, uh, g girl, when I would have uh, told about her disease, the, the hospitalization, then it would be a, a terrible book and, and, and terrible in, in, in a literary sense and terrible in a in medical sense. So I, 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 I <coughs> yeah, took some things out, I changed uh, I changed things of my own family, my, my, my about my father and my mother. For instance, I, uh, yeah, I had to make make them up up because I had uh, I, the story needed that. So I, d I don't make uh, the, uh, the experience is, is is true and convincing, but the circumstances are. Did you see? I I love that line. The story needed that. I mean, I, that's that's. What, what, I mean, I can ask everybody here, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to sacrifice I'd, I'd, for, a, I'd, for a story? It's, it's not a story. It, it, when, you, uh, when you write about um, uh, someone who is missing, it's about the missing, about the gap, n not about uh, well, something at the, at the sorry, other side. Sorry, I mean, I consider embellishments whether the selection, what you choose to tell, is also partly embellishment. I mean, you're ignoring a lot of things. What you put in that you wouldn't have put in for that. So when I say lying, it's, it's sort of lying. Uh, so, but I'm fascinated by what I would do to make a book work, what I would do to make a novel work, what I would do to make a story work, what I would do to make a book of history work. Uh, there is a line that I'm sure all of us will not cross. You know, you'll, I would never imagine that somebody would say they were, you know, a gang member in, in LA or whatever. But where is that line? You make you make situations clear. You yes. you leave out the the things are, which you don't understand. So you only write about things you understand. So you you you, you make a, a situation that's like. Like a situation in a book, and in, in reality, when, when, for instance, when, when uh, doctors come in and tell you your child will not live uh, anymore, and, and you you make have to make the decision: what do you want? Uh, do you want to make it uh, uh, as long as possible, or do you think it's it's you're ready for it uh, in a few minutes? Um, it's it's when you write about it, it's impossible to mm -hmm. uh, describe such a situation because what happens in your head is is a, is a turmoil, and what you describe is something else. What I describe as a kind of scene who, who could be borrowed from Kafka or something, an absurd. I, I create an absurd situation, mm -hmm. but in reality, the situation was for me not absurd but unbearable. But when I write about it, I, I create something else. Did, did you? Claim or, or disclaim or claim it within the, within the text that you were. What you just described. No, but it is clear from the, uh, from the way I, I I write. It is it is about writing and, and my book is in in the, in the first place not about my my a baby but about language and, 
trying to make sense out of a senseless event, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's literature all about. So it's 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 it's, it's about uh, uh, Paul Valéry uh, and uh, Paul Celan and and uh, Martin Heidegger. They're all in, in it too. They're not quite a baby uh, subjects. Uh, so I. I uh, uh, yeah, for, for, for me, it's about uh, about writing and being sincere in writing, not being sincere towards uh, some doctors in some hospital. Right. Mm. Do you ever that? Do you ever think about? No, writing? I actually agree completely. It's being sincere. I mean, the sincerity is towards the story, towards uh, being able to express what happened in in your own way. So it, it's a definitely a sincerity. Uh, so you can make something up. Or not, or you know, I, it's uh, the line is blurred for me. But you have, in my opinion, no matter what you make up, you have to be sincere to 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 the story, or to the novel, or to the memoir, or or to the feelings that you're you're going through. I always think about what Grace Paley used to talk about, which was writing the truth according to the character. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't always about what, for you as a writer, was true or accurate, but thinking about who it was you were writing about and what was their history and their experience and what was their language for it. Um, and I think even when I was working on the memoir, that notion of truth according to the character being other people in the story and what their, I mean, obviously I can't be literal and factual about their perceptions, but as best I can render their perception based on what I know about them. So sincerity is, I mean, that's another way of putting it, that you're sincere no. to the character. Right. As a writer, you have to be, I mean, for me, if I, like I started, that this is all about lying, then what are you sincere to? You know, what, do, what holds, uh, what holds true? I always think for me the biggest obligation is to to telling the character's story as best I can, whether or not that character is a fictional character, yeah. which means creating them as fully and wholly as I can, or a real person and representing them as as you know accurately or completely as I can, whether it's a pretty picture or not a pretty picture. If 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 that's the case and you're sin sincere as you say, then um, does the sincerity eliminate the any? So you'd be unconflicted both in, I suppose specifically in memoir about, uh, would you change things to, to fulfill that sincerity of the story and the characters rather than to, you know, uh, fact? No, I wouldn't change things in a memoir. I mean, I think that, that if I'm really telling the truth according to the character in the memoir, then I'm not changing fact. I would not change fact. Um, I have to say that said, you know, I secretly hate writing memoir. Um, because it's really hard, and I find I find that the obligation to fact or doing journalism is a very difficult one. Because when you're writing fiction, you can switch lines around, you can you can make somebody slightly older, slightly younger, and and, and I think in fiction, for me, it is a wonderful way of writing about our emotional lives and writing what's emotionally and psychologically true, which I'm more able to render it. It's a kind of, I think, of, of really good fiction as being, for lack of a word, truer than true. I mean, it is the thing that informs us about who we are and how we live our lives. Whereas I think memoir, for me, represents kind of a single story or a moment that is also informative and, and illuminating. But, you know, for me, fiction is the really big picture. Um, and that, it, you know, I think in a novel, also the, the time and space you can encompass is very different than in a memoir, unless you're also talking about a memoir that's a very interesting amalgam of, of you know, of a country's history and a family's history, which is, you know, it, it is a very new thing to blend those two. 
Were you ever tempted by fiction to write it? No, I've never. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think so. I just had. No, I've never actually. I've never actually thought about writing fiction. Though I enjoyed so much. I mean, I. I, th I think when I was writing my my book and 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 once I had made the decision that this wasn't going to be a traditional empirical narrative history, but was going to be something different, uh, and that that was clear in my own mind, I felt much more free. And you know, I, in the beginning, I, I resisted because I thought. You know, this will be. I mean, this is not the kind of history you're supposed to write. And I, I'd written a very a much more a book for an academic audience uh, before, or after I'd done my PhD, and so I was very reluctant to move away from the normal um, sort of model of, of of writing history with lots of footnotes and, and and everything else. But then I thought, you know, if if I was actually trying to um, talk about my country to a friend or to an audience somewhere, I would almost certainly include stories from my family's history. Mm -hmm. I would certainly include my own experiences as they, as they were relevant. And at that point, I thought, then why not include them in my book? And then I felt much more free in terms of going in many different directions, both chronologically, um, but also in terms of including things that I thought were not just relevant, but also um, interesting and, and would, would give a slightly different take on, 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 on what I was presenting also in terms of history itself as well. I think I think we could probably have. Do you all have a lot of questions or just a few questions? <laughs> I think there's microphones on the on the left and right. If you want to uh, <laughs> take questions from the microphones. Hi. Yes, you're first. I have, a, I have a question for um, everyone on the panel. Okay. Um, I think one thing you have in common is you all have families, be they alive or dead. And do you ever draw a line in a work of fiction and/or a memoir about not revealing something? that might be hurtful to anyone alive or dead in your families? I, um, it's interesting. I, when I first published a chapter of my memoir in The New Yorker, I actually changed the names of some people. And then I hadn't finished the book yet. And then when I, by the time I finished the book, I realized that to change the names of people meant that I was changing history and that I was in some way playing along with the notion that there was something to be ashamed of. And I thought, as hurtful as this may be to some people, unintentionally, I have a, an obligation to not be ashamed and to tell the truth and to allow it to stand as is. And then I felt that if I changed one person's name, that it was all you know, as, as though you're changing you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And it shifted things. So I made that decision that I was going to use people's real names despite that. And I think that, for me, was a very pivotal, specific change. And then in other things I'd written before that, um, and I've written you know, a lot of sort of very controversial things, and, and uh, I have to say, for whatever reason, I have not worried about what my family will think. My sense has always been that hopefully they know me and they know me well enough to know what is and isn't either true or what is or isn't a really a problem in some way. So. Um, but I also, that said, I feel like I've been lucky. I come from you know, a family of artists who, are, you know, who understand sort of something about what I do. For me? Right. Yeah, in, in, in my case, it, uh, I had to ask my, my wife, but uh, she, uh, because uh, it was a child of her, we had, to, we had it together, so uh, I, thought, I thought it would be fair to uh, have her uh, consent. Uh, I wouldn't have written it. Uh, wouldn't have published it if she wouldn't agree with it, but she uh, she, she was yeah, she liked it very much. But because 
she, we couldn't talk about it. So uh, when, when something happens that's traumatic, you you can't. I couldn't talk about it. So I had to write about it, and she had to read about it. So it came together. And the rest of my family, my mother particularly, disliked it because she is not uh, so so very uh, flatter. It is not a flattering portrayal of hers in it. But uh, I didn't uh, mind. She did. But uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, it it really wasn't a, too much of an issue. I mean, most of the the family histories I have in my book were of people in my family, my ancestors who were dead or long dead, and and even stories from my parents' um, upbringing, it's, it's from them, and these were, I suppose, stories that they were comfortable with, and, and I'm sure they excluded lots of things, but I, I, I wouldn't know. Um, and these were things that had taken place 50, 60 years ago. Um, and there's, because it is a, a long, you know, covers a long period of time, there's very little about the last um, 10, 15 years. And so if I told uh, stories from my, my, about my parents over the last 10, 15 years, then it might have included things that they might have been uncomfortable with being published, but it, it didn't really come up in, because of the because of the scope of, of, of the book that I had written. And as to me, uh, the only way I was able to start to write was to actually think that I don't care anymore. I mean, it, it got to the point where I was so worried about what who would get hurt if I wrote, even though I was writing fiction. Uh, and then one day, I don't know what happened, I just you know, sat down and I didn't care. And I usually think that while I'm writing, I'll just write this, and if somebody's offended, then I'll take it out. And I don't. <laughs> and I've been banned in countries, and I've been you know, scandalized. But my main family is basically supports me, so. It's like my, you know, my mom, my fa my dad, my two sisters. The rest of the family don't talk to me, but it's for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else? Yes. I'm both. Most I I live over here. I've been here since 1977. Uh, but I spend about three to four months of the year in Beirut and I have for the last 30 years. <clears throat> yes. Uh, my question is for Than, me and to you. I hope I'm correct, correctly pronouncing your name. You made several references to family stories going back many generations. I was wondering how those stories were preserved orally or in writing, and how were you able to know to what extent they were factual? Yeah. Um, the, 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 the only sort of family archive that I used in any way was um, an unpublished manuscript by my grandfather, Uthant, um, which he wrote a few months before he died here in New York in 1974 of cancer. And that included um, stories from his, it was, a, it was the beginning of an autobiography that he never published. And I have no way of knowing whether everything there is factual or selective, or, but I used some of that in, in my book. Um, the stories from my parents are, are stories that they've told me, um, and again, I have no way of checking, double-checking the accuracy. And the stories, um, especially on my father's side, uh, Uthant is my mother's father, on my father's side that go back to the 18th and 19th century, these are stories that have been passed down in my father's line. Um, they're not so much. They're not so much stories that he's told me. Uh, they're stories that because I was I I I studied history for for a long time. Been very interested in history for a long time. These are things that I asked um, his relatives in Mandalay 
um, many times over the last uh, 15, 20 years and that they've told me. And again, I have no idea. I've tried in some cases to double check. I mean, there are specific stories that have to do with uh, palace coups and, and other things back in the, in the 1860s and 1870s. And I've tried to look in British records and other things to check to see if, there's, if they link up in any way to, to things that are written down elsewhere. Um, so I've tried to double check, but there could be things that are, that are not true but have been passed down anyway. Yes. Okay, okay, thank you. Um, I wanted to reference something that was spoken about earlier. I think A.M. Holmes mentioned it about how uh, fiction is sometimes truer than memoir, and it, it just seems to be a phenomenon going on. I don't know about other countries, but in the U.S., uh, that only if you've lived through something is, is it authentic. And um, I'm a psychotherapist, and, and it, it goes on in that field, too, that there's... Uh, numbers of people who feel that you can't work with substance abusers unless you're a substance abuser or rape victims unless you're a rape victim and I'm just wondering from the from the panel what you think about this this feeling now where it's that uh, kind of the failure of creativity imagination or empathy that people are believed not to understand something at all unless you've actually experienced it which is why maybe there's the rise of memoirs. The tendency in, in Europe as well, I think it's a, it's a thing that happens everywhere that uh, witnesses are uh, requested and that uh, writers are uh, yeah, in a bit uh, somber position. But I, I, um, uh, for myself, I think it has to do with the fact that uh, uh, you ha you ha reading is di more difficult than you think, perhaps, and 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 most people, all, everybody thinks he can read, and and when they read, they read literally, and when you read literature, you ha you read references, and you when you read a sentence, you you are reminded of other sentences you you have read somewhere else, and 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 that becomes a, a map in your head, and when you have no map like that in your head, you you can only read things in a in a simple way, and. I think then you could think uh, a writer is a liar. And the other, that, uh, another thing that you, ha I mean, that I always think that nobody ever asks somebody who has broken his foot to go and set somebody else's foot. <laughs> you know, yet you know somebody who was raped is asked to go help another person who was raped. Now you can offer empathy, but there has to be some form of skill or training or something. <coughs> Uh, and I find it fascinating that everybody who has had an experience think they can write that experience. You know? uh, and they, mi they might be able to, they might not be. But yes, we've gotten to the point where there is such an attachment to y you've gone through this, you know, you're, you, you've been an alcoholic so you know what alcoholism is. Uh, and the fact is that, you know, for the most part, most alcoholics don't know what alcoholism is. And that doesn't mean that I, as a writer, can come and sit and write about alcoholism. But um, I just find it fascinating that we assume that just because somebody has that experience, he should be able to fix that experience. I think and going also back to, to the question for a second, what I find interesting and disturbing is I think there is a failure of the imagination. I think there is a failure of empathy. Um, and even I remember when I was teaching writing and I, I was at Columbia, 
and I used to give the students assignments, and it was during the O.J. Simpson trial, and I said, I want you each to keep a diary from the point of view of a juror. And I randomly sort of went around the room and said, you know, you're a 48-year-old woman, you're whatever, and I happened to say to a young uh, African-American woman, you know, you're a 60-year-old African-American woman. She says, but I'm only 32. <laughs> But the idea that, that somebody couldn't imagine or inhabit the experience of someone other than themselves, I think is really a problem. I mean, I think it gets to a problem of who we are as a culture and who we are in our ability to be compassionate and take care of each other. Um, and it, it is, I mean, I think in some way it would be interesting to, to think about how do you write a piece of fiction which begins to articulate that and that sort of, that I don't know if it's like stupidity or narcissism or what, that we only seem to think we can understand ourselves, and even that seems incredibly limited. Um, I think it's actually fascinating. Mm -hmm. I don't have an answer or a solution, but I'm, you know. I mean, this is slightly different from your, from your question, but I think in, in history as well, I mean, I think there's an assumption to some extent that uh, a person writing about his own country uh, writing even the history of his own country, that that writing is more authentic than if it was somebody else. I mean, if I think if I wrote a history of Lebanon, um, people wouldn't give that book as much weight. In yes, some but way. it would be better than me doing a history of Lebanon. <laughs> well, but no, no, no. But there is that. There's the thing. I mean, I, I think I think if if you know, I, I know many uh, historians, uh, the people I used to work with at university, who if they wrote a history of of Burma would do a, a, a great job, uh, compared to many Burmese historians who who, who may not because mm -hmm. of the skill issue. But I think there is a sense, um, whether it's nationality or class or race or other things, that you know, that you are in a privileged position to write about um, the history or the the, the, the situation of, of your group than um, than if you were not. Um, and I think, in some way, at least subconsciously, I mean, if we if we see a history of India or China or Africa, I mean, if if the person is from that place, you 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 assume to some extent that they have some advantage. Doesn't mean that they can't overcome that advantage. Um, but I think there is a prejudice in favor of, of, of people writing uh, nonfiction, I'm talking about, um, um, based on their kind of heritage, the, the sense of you know, where they're from. Yeah, yes. um, I actually just wanted to add some sort of muddled statistics to the, the question that came before me. And this is going to be really secondhand because my, my husband is attempting to write an article about the, uh, the Margaret Seltzer, Margaret B. Jones debacle that just happened recently. Um, he came across some information that I think was printed in the Times, and this is really muddled, so I apologize. Um, there was a large survey taken of about six to eight million individuals in which they asked the question, um, do you think you have a book in you? Eighty percent of the people said yes. And another thing that's interesting that I found, um, the number, the percentage of the people interviewed directly coincides with the amount of blogs that have been created in the past year. So, um, I mean, I think that maybe that has to do with a certain kind of rise of American hyper-individualism that maybe exists for centuries. I don't know if this is new or if this is not new, but it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. So. It is fascinating. Is hyper-individualism like I'll have a grande latte extra shot or whatever with soy? Yeah, is I mean, that just having that, a cup of coffee? Is it that? might be. I mean, I think it's um, more than anything, it has to do with the fact that, in my opinion, people are... Um, I'm definitely concerned with their own existence and the idea of presenting themselves as almost fictional characters and the idea of, you know, you could take that as um, the rise of reality television maybe and the idea that, I mean, I know as, as a, young, a young person myself, um, my childhood is filtered through the lens of the recording camera. I mean, most of my experience in childhood was recorded by my parents. I have like eight hours of tape I could watch and, and most of my memories are delineated by that. 
that recording. And I think it's it's sort of similar to a lot of people in this dis, um, generation, you know. See, I, I love the fact that 80% think they have a book in them, which is probably true. The question would be much more interesting is, do you have a book on you and can you write a coherent sentence? <laughs> that would drop the answer. Yes. I have a question for A.M. Holmes. Uh, you've written from a number of perspectives, male, female, older, younger, different sexual orientations, and you wrote one other book of nonfiction to, about L.A., but I'm wondering about this book. You said uh, it was very difficult for you to write, and obviously it's a very personal story. I'm wondering if part of the difficulty for you was uh, you having to drop the facade of imagination and kind of exposing something that's been inside you since you were very young and kind of how you dealt with that and why you decided to do it sure. now. I mean, for me, I think the difficulty, there were a couple difficulties. One was finding language for very early experience and very early emotional and psychological experience that sort of happened before I had really access to language and how to write about it in a way that wasn't overwriting about it. So to sort of be subtle, but kind of to, to try to find a way of talking about things like being given away by your parent. And, and how do you say what that feels like? Because it's so in a funny way, peculiarly overwhelming to be given away, you know, literally. Um, so that was one aspect, was that. And then the other sort of real piece of difficulty was that I wrote 100 pages of it. I wrote the first 100 pages, and I gave it to somebody very pivotal in my publishing life, who will remain nameless, who really seemed to think that it was awful. <laughs> and I, and, and that it was somehow, the story was kind of raw and unprocessed, and I really should write it from the point of view of all these years later looking back on it and making somehow making sense of it. And I sort of, I, I had to say, if I thought that it would have stopped me from writing it, I never would have given it. But having never had that experience before, I just thought, I'll get some comments and this is, you know, where I'll go. And it stopped me for years. And I would just say to myself, like, come on, just finish it secretly, you know. Don't tell yourself you're finishing it. Because I just thought I wanted to even get a draft of it because I also was aware of how memory and experience changes over time. And as other things happen in your life, what was happening in one moment becomes different, and the shape of it changes. I keep going like this because it had a shape for me. So there was that piece of it. Um, and then the stranger part was that I, at some point, somebody, Granta, knew, everyone knew that this thing sort of existed. I had a contract for it and all these things. And Granta kept bugging me about something, so I went back and I thought, well, I've got to be able to get something out of these hundred pages. And I looked at it and I thought, it's fine. And not only is it fine, I wouldn't change it. There's nothing about the way it's written that I would write any differently at this point, because this is the story. And because of the nature of the experience, there was no other way I would ever tell the story. And then I thought, you know, all bets are off, I'm going forward, and so be it. And then the stranger thing was I turned it in again to the same person, I was like, it's brilliant! Um, so I don't know if the medication was working, wasn't working. You know, it's hard to know what's going on with anybody. Uh, you know. <laughs> yes. Did the birth of your daughter Sorry. have an influence on the time? You know, everyone keeps asking about the birth of my daughter. Yeah, the funny thing is, you know, I, the book was already happening way before I had a kid, and everyone's and I always knew that I was, you know, at some point going to have a kid. And the the kid doesn't figure promptly in the book because I keep telling people I don't really know the kid that well, um, and I, I can't. You know, she's going to have to write her own books. <laughs> yes. It's funny. It's like he um, jumped in my head and stole my question. Oh. But I read um, the, your memoir and also the novel in the country of Moth in the country yeah. of mothers, and I read them in the same week. Hmm. And so there's some a few par a few lines, perhaps a couple paragraphs that 
are very close. And Absolutely, I was confused yeah. thinking, oh, I, I must have put my book down. I've read this already. And I realized yeah. it was in another form. And I was just wondering, what was it like, the experience of writing the novel as well sure. as the memoir? Because you said the memoir was so difficult. Right. What was it like covering the same, similar sure. territory? I mean, it's funny. I would like to say I feel so busted. But I don't. Because, no, it's really interesting. Because in writing Country of Mothers, okay, so here I am, this writer who says, I really write from my imagination. Country of Mothers, and I shouldn't say this, my least favorite of any book I've written. Um, because I tr it was the only time I tried to work from an autobiographical thread, and it's a story about a woman who gave up a child for adoption, later becomes a therapist, therapist there somewhere, finds the, f gets a new patient she thinks is the child and drives the girl crazy. Um, and it was sort of my hope to reconcile what it meant to give a child up and to have some sense of that experience. And weirdly, so I wrote the novel, and there were things in it that I had imagined, literally imagined, about my biological mother. And they're in that book, and it talks about how she never married and all these different things. And then Country of Mothers was in galleys. So, I mean, it was just about to come out when, this is what the memoir's about, out of the blue reappears my biological mother. And the strangest thing is, the things that I imagined about her all were true. Which, again, does that mean that you sort of, and you know, in, psych in psychology would talk about how there are things that you know that you don't know that you know. And I think that that really is something that comes into play a little bit if you're writing and you're really attuned to something. Um, so that said, there are weird overlaps that are not specifically intentional but were, you know, real things. I don't know if I answered your question. My favorite was that you said your package is now waiting and it's like, tied in pink ribbons. I remember that line yeah. from both. And they were because that was a real line that, that, that my parents had told me that when I was born, the lawyer called them and said, your package is here and it's tied in pink ribbons. And that appears as a line in the, in the novel and it appears as a line in the memoir. Yeah, it's true. We have time for two more questions, yes. This is a question for everyone or anyone. When you are being published um, as uh, your book is being published as nonfiction, or you are publishing your book as nonfiction. Do you feel it important or incumbent upon you to um, to tell the reader your perspective in either a prefatory note or an afterward? Uh, for example, if you are blurring some lines between fiction and nonfiction, uh, but. I just am curious about how you feel about addressing the reader and telling her or him exactly what you you think you're doing. I mean, in in, in my book, it was. I mean, I again, I, I I tried to be as accurate as possible. But beyond that, you know, I I was sort of moving towards a certain argument towards the end of the book that have to do a lot about the current politics in in my country. And so, in the preface, I I set out very clearly my intent in, in writing the book and, and something already about where I thought I was coming from in terms of my own experience and why I had taken these positions so that before people got into the history they had a sense of, of what I was trying to, to do um, fairly clearly at, at, the, at the very beginning. Uh, I, um, I had preferred myself that there would be nothing on it on the on the cover at all, but in uh, in, in Holland, uh, the Netherlands, where it was, uh, it was, I'm a Dutch writer. It was possible to leave out the qualification memoir or etc. So it was without qualification, and some uh, wrote about it as an autobiography, and others wrote about it as a novel. And I was very glad with that. 
But when it was sold to title in, uh, in, in to several countries, there it seemed to be impossible, for instance, in the United States, to leave out the uh, the, uh, the, the message that, is a, that it is a memoir. So it is, uh, uh, was published by Ferris Trichereau as a memoir, and even there was a very uh, ugly picture on it with two uh, baby hands, and I found it awful, but couldn't do anything about, about it. Uh, so I, I had uh, preferred to... Uh, yeah, just call it a book. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't written a memoir, so I've never had to explain. I guess we have time for one last question. Okay, uh, I got to know the writer Mary McCarthy in her late years, and um, she was a stickler for fact and memoir. She wrote Memories of a Catholic Girlhood. But one thing that really struck me um, was that she was still years after the book was published, getting fan mail uh, from people who wrote to her um, saying, you have told my story, or you've told part of my story, or I finally understood uh, what my childhood was like. And I wondered, and she would get fan letters about her novels too, but it was a wonderful book, it was a great plot, I liked this character, that character. But that personal kind of fan letter that goes to a writer of a memoir, I wonder if you have had that. I mean, I can talk a little about that. I've, I've, the, the mail that I got from the memoir and also the people who showed up the readings was an incredibly different audience. Um, and I have gotten enormous amounts of, of both letters and emails and things from people who have, if not the same thing happen, have happened to them, have a relationship to that. So either were people who had been given up, people who have adopted children, people who gave up children. And I think that one of the things, and one of the reasons that I felt compelled to finish the memoir was that it was a subject that wasn't talked about often. And it was a subject that there wasn't a, a sort of a lot of articulate, you know, writing about. And so I hoped to make something that people would in some way respond to. Um, it, it didn't matter to me if it was a right or a wrong. There, to me, there was no right or wrong or a way of you know, experiencing it. Um, and it's been very moving. And, and a friend of mine who wrote a memoir who got enormous response said, oh, you know, you're going to hate that part where people want to like, talk to you and tell you their story. And I think it's honestly incredibly uh, touching. You know, it is very different. I usually just get letters from like prisoners um, <laughs> who feel we have something in common. <laughs> Any closing remarks? No, yeah, I, uh, for me it's the same. I had the same ex experience, and I think that, that that's a, a great thing that you uh, can be uh, useful to so many people. That, but yeah. no, no closing <laughs> remarks. Okay, uh, thank you all very much for coming. <laughs> Panelists will be. The panelists will be just outside for to sign books directly following this. Thank you. <laughs>